Well, welcome everybody um, watching this from wherever you are. Uh, it's the last of our series on the portraits of Jesus that were painted by the Apostle John in the fourth book of the New Testament. And before we get into this last week, I just want to talk about what's happening next week because we start a brand new series called Reimagine. And our senior pastor, Rick Painter, is, is just going to be expressing what God has put on his heart for the future of our church. And I don't want you to miss one week of it. If you're not already in a life group, can I encourage you, it may be even just for the next four or five weeks, to uh, to get into a life group. Uh, you can do that by um, signing up on the, there are uh, special codes that are going to happen at the end of this service where you can connect uh, with a life group or you can just put it in the chat and we'd be happy to uh, contact you. Even if you can't get out physically to, to a life group, we can organise uh, to have you part of a, a Zoom life group as well. So uh, it's going to be a really special time for our church between now and Easter. So I just encourage you to be part of it. So getting into this last week, I have a question for you. When was the last time you read or saw something that made you laugh out loud? Well, a friend of mine just um, lent me a novel called The Hundred-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out of the Window and Disappeared. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's hilarious. But one of the characters uh, is a bit of a small-time crook who tries to make a buck wherever he can, and he has a mate who works in a recycling centre who rings him and tells him, I've just received this delivery of 20,000 expensive leather-covered gold-printed Bibles that are supposed to go to the shredder. He couldn't see anything wrong with them. And he said, well, perhaps his mate could, could spirit them out of the recycling centre and then they could on-sell them at markets and they could split the profits. Well, so this small-time crook gets all of these Bibles delivered to his garage and then he gets one out and he sits down by the fire with a beer and starts to read. He's desperately trying to find the error in the printing that would cause such a huge waste of resources. He had another Bible that was given to him at his confirmation ceremony years ago, so he is meticulously comparing the two books word by word. You can imagine that this took hours and involved several glasses of beer and a few gins as well, but he was determined not to give up. He made his way through all the books of the Old Testament and into the New, page after page, book after book. Finally, he gets to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and the last chapter of the last book, and then the last page of the last chapter, and finally, there it is. A new line had been added to the very end of the scripture by the typesetter who apparently had had a bad experience with church and saw this as a way of getting revenge. So the end of Revelation chapter 22 read, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Then a space, and then, and they all lived happily ever after. I was reading this in bed and got the giggles, and then I started to belly laugh. 
Rick was looking at me like I was an idiot and then wanted it on the joke. It was hard to explain why I found it so funny. I'm, I'm sure that the idea that the whole Bible is just a big fairy tale is probably a common one amongst some Aussies, but I feel that could be the attitude of someone who's never actually read the Bible. Even historians who are not of the Christian faith vouch for how the narratives of the Gospels read as historical recollections and not as mythological made-up fairy tales. The story we're going to read today from the end of the Gospel of John is one of those stories that just smacks of authenticity because of its detail. Let's look at this beautiful painting of the scene I'm about to read by the Renaissance artist Caravaggio. Those of you with some knowledge of the Gospel stories will recognise this scene. In the story, we have gone through the horror of the crucifixion of Christ and we are on the other side. As far as the disciples were concerned, it was over. Jesus was dead. All their dreams had come to an end. Jesus had been dealt with by the authorities as they had dealt with so many other so-called Messiah figures who claimed to be sent from God to save the Jewish race. But then something happened, something miraculous. The women went to the tomb and they found it empty. And we're going to read from just after that story from verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in these, this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
I love this story of Thomas so much. Why? Because even though he lived and walked with Jesus for three years, he was still so cynical about the possibility of a miraculous move of God. In our very smart scientific age, we look back at the ancients of biblical times and think, of course they accepted the resurrection. They were so naive about scientific fact. Well, no, it was just as hard for the disciples to believe that such a thing could happen. They had to be confronted with immutable proof, and that was the presence of the physical person of Jesus, not a ghost but a real person, as he was before his death and yet different, a new creation, a body that could move in a supernatural way. It's clear from the story that he appeared in the room with them without going through the locked door. One of the many details that John adds to verify the story, verse 26 says, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them. Thomas the cynic is forced to believe because he sees with his own eyes. But what about us? We obviously do not have the privilege of being in that room 2,000 years ago. How can we have faith that this is true? Is faith just a, a wild leap into the unknown? I don't think so. We base our faith on a foundation of reality. God intervened in human history in a physical way. We add our reason and our study of the Bible to our innate sense of the reality of God and we choose to believe. And when we get to that place, it cannot be, okay, I believe now. If Jesus is raised to life, then he is proving God's plan for us, that he is orchestrating this world to be recreated as his perfect kingdom, and we have a role in bringing that kingdom to pass. There is only one rational response to that call, and it's the same response as Thomas as he fell to his knees. My Lord and my God. The term Lord is not one that's used in our culture, but it was very familiar to the ancients. Today, we proudly proclaim that no one will be Lord over us. We are independent and free to discern our own destiny. But in history, the desire to have a righteous and honourable Lord was strong. Just think of medieval times where the most fortunate of people lived under the care of a compassionate and strong Lord who would protect them from enemies. And I love the image of the Knights of the Round Table pledging their allegiance to their Lord King Arthur because they knew he was the rightful ruler of the land and his cause was justice and peace. They were not diminished by giving their loyalty to such a righteous Lord. It was their joy and their privilege and it gave their existence purpose. We can actually accept the historical reality of the resurrection but still not follow Thomas to our knees to declare Jesus Lord over our lives. That involves humility. 
That involves a realisation that God rules this world and we don't. That involves an admittance of our sin and that we can't do this life on our own. That involves obedience and sacrifice of our wants and needs. But what does it lead to? An understanding that we are in the loving hands of the Father who created us for a purpose and that there is nothing that can happen to us in this life that can separate us from his love. That even the face of death, it has no ultimate power over us. Even suffering can find us more firmly in his care. And that thought of suffering takes me to the scars of Christ that are so central to the story of Thomas. The fact that they even exist in this story is yet another reason why I believe in the historicity of the Gospels. How so? Well, if you wanted to make up a story about the triumphant return of the king, a they all lived happily ever after ending, surely you would have removed his scars from the story? You know, crucifixion was the most shameful way to die. In an honour-bound culture, even your method of death was a source of pride or shame. For instance, the great Greek philosopher Socrates was highly revered in his day. But when the political winds turned against him, he was given the respect of choosing to die at his own hand by drinking poison. Such honour. Crucifixion. You were dragged up a hill. You were nailed through your flesh to a cross. They basically tortured you until you died. It was the way the Romans dealt with their social scum. No honour. No glory. Can you even imagine what the body of Christ looked like when he was laid in that tomb? But when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with a new glorified body. It was him, but a newly created him. So why did this newly created body still have scars? If you can conquer death, surely you can add a little plastic surgery to fix them, right? Jesus rose as a glorious foretaste of what we all will be, newly created in him. He was perfect. But how do you improve on perfection? You keep your scars and you keep them for eternity. They are the record of who you are and where you have been and the fact that you have come out the other side of suffering as Jesus promises us will be our ultimate destination to be with him. Scars are our reminder that he did not simply bring beauty out of our tragedy. He brought beauty into our tragedy. That's why I've called this week's portrait the beautiful Jesus. There is beauty in our scars when we allow Christ to be our healer. 
Tragedy, pain and suffering, physical or emotional, no longer has to define us, destroy us or consume us. What are your scars? Do you regret they're there? I was talking to Josh Coates about scars. He knows a thing or two. He's a landscape gardener and he was telling me that when they have to take a limb off a tree, they will actually hollow out the cut parts so that it can become a nesting spot for birds. He sees that the scar of the tree can be a blessing to the bird kingdom. Now, Josh nearly died a couple of months ago when a major artery in his heart blew out. He has a scar right up his chest. To him, it's a reminder of the goodness of God in his life. He actually wanted to talk about it with me today, but he's back in hospital having an upgrade on the new valve they put in him. He told me he has no fear. And I know he's come out of a 12-hour surgery and uh, he's already texting me and his family. He knows who is Lord of his life and he's just resting in that assurance. Are there scars in your life that are preventing you from kneeling at the feet of Jesus and saying, my Lord and my God? Are you angry at God? Not sure why he puts you through that pain? What scar is in your life that Jesus wants to redeem? Scars can be beautiful. They are the record of our life and can be the sign of our deepening character. Thomas saw that Jesus' scars were beautiful. If you can bow your knee and declare Jesus Christ is your Lord, here's what can happen to the scars in your life. And I just want to read some lyrics of one of the songs that has stayed with me for at least 20 years, written by a, a girl named Sarah Groves. The song is called Less Like Scars. It's been a hard year, but I'm climbing out of the rubble. These lessons are hard. Healing changes are subtle, but every day it's Less like tearing and more like building. Less like captive, more like willing. Less like breakdown and more like surrender. Less like haunting, more like remember. Less like a prison, more like my room. It's less like a casket and more like a womb. Less like dying, more like transcending, less like fear, less like an ending. And I feel you here and you're picking up the pieces forever faithful. It seemed out of my hands, a bad situation, but you are able. And in your hands, the pain and hurt look less like scars and more like character. Less like scars and more like character. At the end of this series that we have looked deeply at Jesus, 
a joyful, justice-seeking, merciful, caring, challenging, accepting, embracing, generous, cosmic Jesus, the gate to truth, the light of the world, the door to resurrection and life. There can only be one response. We kneel and declare him, my Lord and my God.